I'm Lisa Hamilton from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and this is CaseyCast. Today, we're talking about Latinos in philanthropy, and I'm thrilled to be joined by two special guests who can lend their voices and perspectives to this conversation. First, I'm joined by Ana Marie Arguilagos, the president and CEO of Hispanics in Philanthropy, an organization whose mission is to advance Latino equity, leadership, and voice across the Americas. Anna Marie has dedicated her life to public service through a career that spans the philanthropic, public, and nonprofit sectors. Her previous positions include Senior Advisor at the Ford Foundation, Deputy Chief of Staff and Deputy Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and leadership roles at both the Casey Foundation and Unidos U.S., formerly known as the National Council of La Raza. We're also joined by Sam Zamaripa, who has led a rich and varied career as an entrepreneur, public official, and most recently, a published author. The first Hispanic to serve as a Georgia state senator, Sam currently serves as president of Intent Solutions, a data service and biotechnology firm. He is also owner and chairman of Mundo Hispanico, a Spanish-language digital media company. Sam is well known for his commitment to public service, and we are so proud to have him as a member of our Board of Trustees at the Casey Foundation. Anna Marie and Sam, welcome to CaseyCast. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Well, obviously, you've both led very accomplished, yet very different careers. Still, you share a commitment and passion for philanthropy. I'd like to ask each of you what led you to want to hold leadership roles in philanthropy. Lisa, most definitely I'm an accidental philanthropist. (laughs) My grandpa sent me to typing school. He wanted me to have a stable career, and so I started as a typist at a bank, but I was lousy. (laughs) So I figured I'd better get myself to college, and I was the first generation in my family to do that. And I started working in my own community in Washington, D.C., where I went to school, and I was doing community organizing, direct services, and from there I moved to national organizations that were doing the broader systems change work at the national level. And for sure, philanthropy was uh, by chance. Actually, my government work was also by chance. I was recruited into world the world of philanthropy right here at the Annie E. Casey Foundation. So for me, Annie Casey is my philanthropic home. It's where I cut my teeth in terms of what philanthropy is because I definitely did not study it. I, I learned it from my work on the ground in the communities and what I learned in, in um, at the Casey Foundation. Hmm. And what made you feel like philanthropy was a good platform for the kind of change you were trying to affect in the world? I understood that we were not going to affect change if we worked from only one sector. So as fantastic as the nonprofit sector is and as powerful as the government is in terms of its might and heft and dollars, if we didn't have philanthropy also uh, working in that same direction. And also we need business. We need all the sectors working in the same direction because there's a tug and a pull. And so that's why I felt um, both philanthropy and government and the nonprofit sector, if I understood all three, I could bridge diverse agendas and we could be more effective. There's few of us that have done all three, to be honest. You are absolutely right. And like you, I'm an accidental philanthropist too. So I I totally understand uh, your route to this work. Sam, I'm curious how you uh, ended up being engaged in philanthropy. 
Yeah, I'm going to take a little slightly different tack, but let me say that uh, Anna Maria and I share the, the typewriter as a common motivation <laughs> in, in things. Uh, um, you know, I think of leadership just in general as a concept that's just miles wide and miles deep. It's it's, it's big space, and it means different things to all of us. But to me, it's it's more like an art form. If you were if you were born with the urge to lead sort of that drive to express, to be in front of something, it's really irresistible. It's something you just cannot deny. When I think about the opportunities to get in front of something and to to lead, I always ask myself, is this the highest and best use of my time today? It's it's my way of saying, am I being a good steward of what I know and what I can do? The opposite, there are a million things I do not know and I cannot do. And and when the opportunity to join the Casey board came to me, I have to say it was just like putting a bowl of wonderful hot soup in front of me. I was hungry for the opportunity to taste it and to be a part of it. I didn't know anything about it, hmm. but I've learned a great deal. And so what I would say was this wonderful confluence of someone uh, offering me the opportunity and my own just desire to be a part of something that I thought was larger than me. Hmm. Had you, you uh, connected with philanthropy or been engaged with philanthropy in your previous roles in business or as a legislator? No, um, only uh, similar to Anna in the sense that I had a, a, a fairly active uh, participation in nonprofits mm-hmm. who are on the, on the edge of, of philanthropy, but more on the receiving end. I understood the dynamic, but I did not understand um, all the particulars that I've come to understand now years into the role. Hmm. Well, you both had different paths, but we are so grateful to have both of you um, in uh, in this part of the, the nonprofit world. I'd like to understand more about the word philanthropy and what it means to each of you. Um, often we think that it's just about financial contributions, but I'm curious if, if each of you have a broader definition of philanthropy. I'll, I'll start with you, Sam. You know, Anna and I talked about this last time we were together, and and, uh, I personally like the Greek root, the idea of love of man, love of humanity. I just think that that is such a compelling idea. It's a big sky uh, concept with a lot of room for an ethical, religious, moral, spiritual ambition. And the money then follows that, that, uh, that inspiration, the big sky idea. The idea that you, an individual, can form something for perpetuity that expresses their version of love for humanity, I think is one of the most compelling ideas um, out there. And uh, so, so when I think about the work of the Casey Foundation and the work of HIP, I think of it as, a, uh, as, a, as an expression of love. And I'm real comfortable with that as as sort of the root of why I'm involved in it myself. Oh, that's great. And I should have mentioned that, Sam, you're on the board of Hispanics in Philanthropy. So you um, are a common yes, trustee for a both prou- of us. A, pr- a proud member. <laughs> that's great. How about you, Anna Marie? What does the word philanthropy mean to you? I think that we both define it in the same way. So it's about love of humanity. So it's not about a checkbook. It's in your gut. It's in your heart. It's it's physical as well as cerebral. And to me, it's as simple as that. At HIP, we spend a lot of time nurturing that because we think that philanthropy is not just big 
NLP foundations, but it's the the everyday givers. And I know, and I've seen it in study after study, that the Latino community is inherently really generous and people give of their time, they give their money, and they give at extremely high rates. Um, it just, giving in the Latino community looks very different and it's more relational, and so it doesn't tend to show up in the same ways that we tend to capture uh, how philanthropy happens in the U.S., which is through United Ways and through um, community foundations and through donor-advised funds. And so at HIP, we're trying to figure out how we capture that so that it can show up and be identified and be aggregated and be visible. And it'll help us demystify this myth of, about Latinos as takers um, because we are givers. Mm, I think this is a great transition to the the next question I wanted to ask you was about the work of uh, Hispanics in philanthropy, what you do that's unique and what's unique about Latino philanthropy. You started talking about that a little bit, um, but you also uh, connect to Latinos who work in philanthropy. So curious about um, your work and the the kinds of uh, members you represent. That's right. We were birthed almost 40 years ago by three Latinos, which was the whole fear of the world of <laughs> Latinos in philanthropy wow. uh, at the time in the early 80s. And they were really hungry to connect with each other and to increase the number, not just of Latinos that were working in the sector, but uh, also of people who understood the community, under, mm. uh, really with a realization that nobody can um, deny that unless you have people that understand the issues that have been out there um, and are close to the problem solving, uh, you're not going to really get a, a good solution. Mm-hmm. And so they were trying to address the accountability and the knowledge within philanthropy so that there would be better foundation giving. But over the years, over the decades, we've really morphed, and today we have different faces addressing different needs that have cropped up over the decades. Um, again, understanding that foundations alone are not going to solve problems. I, I would say that our different faces um, really land around uh, this issue of better and more resources. How do we get more dollars into communities, and I'll say that we work both in the U.S., in Latin America, and in the Caribbean. Um, we're, so we're about better and more resources. How do we leverage that, aggregate that? We're about democratizing philanthropy, which is how do we create on-ramps so that everyday givers, everyone like my mom, my tias, my daughter, my brothers, can figure out very easily how to give. So it's not difficult. Um, leadership development, so getting more people in places where they feel they have agency and voice. And the last, which is really, really important, is agenda setting, influence, what I would call like everything that gives voice to what I feel is an invisible community oftentimes. In the end, it's about giving and connecting. It's about aggregating and leveraging dollars. And you started talking initially about what you thought was unique about Latino philanthropy. You were starting to say it wasn't just about the um, the financial contributions themselves, but that there were um, other ways Latinos give in their community. Would you expound on that a little? We, as a, and I'm broadly generalizing here, as a community, have distrusted institutions and governments, and so we prefer to give 
on a one-on-one to a person. So I rather potentially, if I'm Doña Carmen, she'll prefer to go and give to her church or to give the person on the street that she knows needs a meal rather than give to the United Way or to the Community Foundation. Mm -hmm. There's just a preference to have that person-to-person touch. There's also the strong giving in the church Mm -hmm. and strong giving to education, but again, at a very local and personal level. There's also a lot of giving around remittances, which Mm. could be to your direct families, but it also is around hometown associations, for example. Sam, I want to ask you about your perspective on these issues. You're both an individual philanthropist and a trustee of Casey. Would you answer this question differently about what's unique about Latino philanthropy and maybe, you know, what might be unique about the way you make your own grant-making decisions or the perspective you bring to the Casey Foundation's work? You know, I, I, I liked very much what Anna said uh, but I think a little differently about this. I, I love the question because it makes me think about my own relationship between money and choices. Mm. And, uh, and uh, frankly, it, it, as I thought about it, it reminded me of, uh, of my first, the first time I really thought about money and uh, choices. And it's, it was when I was a kid. And I watched the the 1950s television program, The Millionaire, mm-hmm. uh, with that, the famous actor Marvin Miller. And uh, the idea that someone would actually physically knock on your door and give you, in our case, our very, very modest family, a million dollars was so exciting. <laughs> the idea that you have a million dollars to do anything you wanted. And I, and I think that, that philanthropy is, is a little bit like that. There's a little bit of a relationship a little childlike wonder in all of us involved in philanthropy because we're asking ourselves, what is possible? Hmm. What, what could we do? And, you know, over time, as you, as you ask those questions, which we do every day at the Casey Foundation, which Anna does every day at HIP, over time, the wonder, your childlike wonder meets the hard realities of what poverty is like and what the trauma of our many social ills are like. And putting that wonder and that reality together in one's life is where your perspective comes from, is where your perspective on how you grant and how you give and why you give and how do you know that is the right thing to do. That's where the perspective, my perspective, was born. And he said, and so my, my thinking has changed over time. But today I try very hard to reference what I know about the growing Latino world in the U.S. Uh, Anna has talked about, about the trauma, about fear, about the hardship of children and households with mixed immigration status. You know, today there are, there are almost 2.3 million mixed households in the U.S., and this has a big impact on our future, you know, education, health care, et cetera. And, um, and to our very concept of what it means to be a, an American. And I think that should be of concern to all of us. And so when I think about it today and think about this question you asked, which I, I said I love the question, I thought about my own childhood and what, uh, how I saw money and thought about money. And then I think today of what my responsibility is to draw on the experiences that I've had and to make the best decisions. Mm, I think that is such a, a wonderful description of what I think all of us in philanthropy are trying to do, draw on not just research and knowledge, but just our own 
sense of humanity and uh, to imagine what's possible for others. So I, I think that is a beautiful answer and uh, perspective that both of you have offered. Um, Sam, you started talking about um, some of the current challenges that are facing the Latino community. And I wanted to ask um, either or both of you, you know, as the Latino population has grown in the U.S., what kinds of changes have you seen um, in grant-making practices and the, the kinds of issues that are being addressed? You know, I think Anna gave a really nice uh, uh picture of where the giving takes place. And uh, and I think like a lot of the questions that we're talking about today, the answers are a little bit dynamic uh, because the donor class in the Latino world is changing. Wealth, wealth today is not concentrated uh, and neither is it legacy or inherited wealth, but it is wealth that is growing and emerging. And the behaviors around um, the giving and the philanthropy of that that wealth is changing. Um, I, I tend to think that uh, that it's one part of a larger issue that relates to sort of the ethnic and racial tapestry of the United States that's really now becoming foundational. It's not an exception. It's 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 not going to change. It has changed, mm-hmm. and in the same way we think about that all politics is local, we now understand that poverty and all of its implications are local too. You know, the experience of a dreamer from Mexico is different than a child, an African American child growing up in Clayton County, Georgia. They, they may have poverty in common, uh, but the way it expresses itself, the externalities associated with it are, are different. And they must be addressed uniquely. And this this kind of understanding, this nuance is taking shape, uh, you know, through the efforts of HIP and many other organizations and individuals who are trying to redefine, you know, uh, and and refine our understanding of of poverty in America. So, I think that this concept of of what What's happening with the donor class in the Latino world is is taking place in the context of this dynamic change that um, that is that is taking place everywhere. By the way, it's it's not in just the the coast. It's in the south. It's in the north. It's in the it's in the Midwest, and it's in small and large towns. Absolutely, and and so Anna Marie, I want to ask you the question in a, a slightly different way. You know, I went on a visit with HIP to the U.S. Mexico border last year because I was desperate to learn more about um, the current immigration issues and what was going on with children and families. And I know that was just one way that HIP helped expand my understanding and a really a really uh, personal experience. How, how are you and, and HIP helping um, philanthropists, both you know those who are Latino but, but others of us in philanthropy understand these issues and understand how we need to, to think differently to address them? Great. Excuse me. Um, Lisa, I want to answer the first question, too, that you asked Sam, because I got numbers. I can tell you that from uh, back in 36 years ago, given that we see this increasing emphasis that really foundations are taking so, so seriously on racial equity and Mm -hmm. racial justice, um, our community is finally becoming more visible. And as we start to unpack what that means, and that it's 
centering race, but also looking at ethnicity, class, immigration status, and all of these intersectional ways of looking, that has really been a profound change for the positive. Mm. I think what we're still working on is the stereotypes Mm -hmm. about that Latinos only care about immigration and Mm-hmm. We do care about immigration, but in poll after poll after poll, um, it, it shows that migration is high, but it's on the bottom of, like, it's like number seven, hmm. six or seven. It's not number one, two, mm-hmm. or three. Jobs, health, education, um, those are the ones that come up, just like any other American. Mm-hmm. So those are the things in terms of what are the changes that we're seeing and that we are working day in, day out to really um, address so that donors understand. In terms of what I see as changing, 10 years ago, HIP partnered with what was then the Foundation Center. It's now Candid to do a reporting as to what philanthropy looked like, what was giving um, for the Latinx community in the U.S. And 10 years ago, it showed up as 1% of total philanthropic giving was dedicated to Latino-serving, Latino-led organizations. So fast forward, we did a study uh, which was released just this past summer, and it's in the form of a dashboard. It's called, and so you can all access it, and it's evergreen and it's interactive. So it's really cool. It's called LatinxFunders.org, and so it was a collaboration with Candid, and it shows uh, total funding and the. Um, Latino population 10 years ago was at about 14 or 15 percent of the population. Today, we're at about 18 percent. So we're 58 million strong just in the mainland. That doesn't include Puerto Rico. If you include Puerto Rico, it's over 60 million. But it shows who are the top funders, who are the top recipients. It also shows that um, that number is is real sticky. We're still at 1% of total philanthropic funding. This is with more philanthropies out doing more funding and with a bigger community. So to me, this is not flat funding. To me, this is decreasing resources. And so ever since we got this um, report uh, this summer, we have been really thinking about what does this mean? What are the repercussions of these resources, which are in fact shrinking dollars. Mm. Um, Also, I would say that most of of the money is going to education. You highlighted the fact that we need to have more resources going to support this growing part of our community. So thank you for lifting up that data and for uh, helping our listeners know where they can get more information. I'd love to talk about this intersection between the political landscape and about Latino philanthropy. I appreciate the range of issues that you outlined, Anna Marie, that Latino givers are interested in, everything from jobs and health and education um, and including immigration issues. And all of those obviously are impacted greatly by the policy decisions that leaders make. Um, so I'm I'm curious how your um, philanthropies that you connect with are looking at advocacy as a way to address these issues, and to also hear from you, Sam, as a former elected official, how you you know see the growing number of Latino effect elected officials changing the the policy landscape for kids and families. So why don't I start with you first, Anna Marita, to, to talk about how your donors are understanding advocacy as a pathway to address the range of issues they care about. Lisa, you're on the board of Strive, Mm -hmm. and I love the the tagline about together we're unstoppable. 
And that's how we're looking at advocacy these days. It's like, how does the Latino community partner with the African-American, with the Muslim, with the Jewish community, and, and, and with all of the others? Because it has to be together. It has to be intersectional. And that's the way, um, the only way that will be successful rather than splintering off. Um, but also the Latino community has an advantage in terms of the partnering and bridging because Latinos, as you know, are not only one race. Right. We present as white, as Afro-Latinos, as indigenous Latinos, and so many other um, ways that we do present. And so that puts us as a natural um, community in which we can all come around together. And at HIP, we've been working very, very um diligently and intentionally to be this center of, of, of gravity, which includes all of the communities. Um, I also want to say something that's worrying me a lot lately, which is given that we work with advocates and community organizers and first responders, uh, usually philanthropists think about the work, the actual organizing work, um, and what we're and we've been really good over the past generation uh, of giving in understanding that the best solutions come from the impacted communities themselves, and to include these communities in the work and to include them in uh, as foundation program officers and things like that, but. When the frontline responders are also developed doing the work as a philanthropist, there is a whole level of trauma mm. and grief and exhaustion that is thread into the work on many different levels. And I think that we're only starting to understand what that means when the people that are doing are, are actually doing the work on several different levels and bringing it home with them. Mm. And I think that that's the next generation of what we need to be thinking about. How do we support um, all of those that are both first-line responders uh, living the spa- in the space and also um, trying to do the giving. Um, Sam, I uh, asked you a question related to the intersection of advocacy and philanthropy. You're a former um, elected official. You served in the Georgia uh, Senate. How do you see the growing number of Latino elected officials changing the policy landscape? I'm particularly interested in kids and families, but in general, how do you think that's affecting the policy decisions you're seeing? Yeah, so so uh, the, this is a dynamic space as well, and you know today we have some forty odd members of the United States Congress who are or Latino, and then then according to Naleo, there are, there are some six thousand um, elected officials in various you know county, state, uh, local positions, and growing. So I think this is a dynamic that is uh, f- fully underway. And you're going to see very, very large numbers of men and women um, take political positions, both elected, appointed, and they're going to do so with a kind of of, of enthusiasm and zeal, which which is really representative of their fundamental belief in uh, the democracy and in, in government and politics. Hmm. That said. Um, um, Politics is only one of the levers that we have at our disposal, and, and it's an important one, but it's, it is no substitute for some of the things that, that Anna was talking about a moment ago related to local engagement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and neither, by the way, is it a substitute for 
the other things that influence our the way we live. And those things include culture and music and art and poetry and literature and, uh, and uh, the intellectual thinkers who are willing to talk about this new American tapestry, this extremely colorful, rich world that, that now is everywhere in America. And I think that once those things align with politics, then I think politics can can make it more long-term contribution. In the short term, a lot of politics will be about the firsts and the fights and uh, a lot of the disagreements that are so um, so present in our culture today. But over time, you know, you, over time, culture and art and poetry will have just as big an impact on how we think about this and how we embrace it as political leaders. Well, you uh, you both mentioned uh, leadership both at the outset of this conversation and, and then in this um, this discussion about um, uh, the political leadership of the country. I know that HIP is particularly interested in fostering the next generation of Latino leaders. I'd love to hear how you are doing that. We have a fabulous uh, leadership program, which is called the Lideres, and it's aimed at mid-career professionals that have been in the sector for a while. I find that we are getting them in. There's a strong pipeline, but they get disenchanted after they've been in the sector for a few years, and that's what that's the person that we're addressing. Those that have been in there for a few years and that are looking to figure out how they can actually be more meaningful, how they can connect to other Latinos in the sector that are at that same stage in their lives. And so it's been incredibly exciting to be able to foster four cohorts now. Uh, We are right now also recruiting for the fifth cohort, and um, it includes two-thirds foundation program officers and one-third folks from the nonprofit space that are interested in going to philanthropy uh, because we want to make sure that they're prepared. When I landed at Annie Casey uh, 20 years ago, I had never been in philanthropy. I had never known anybody who had worked in philanthropy. And so it was a brand. It was like I had landed in Mars. And so what we want to do is make sure that those that are likely going to be applying and going into philanthropy have a little bit of a built-in network and that they're in a place where they're readier uh, to be successful. Sam, I want to ask you about leadership from a different perspective. You're a trustee of the Annie Casey Foundation, and you've been partnering with Anna Marie and HIP to help increase the number of Latino trustees and foundations. Share with our listeners why you think this is so important and what the two of you are working on to, to try to increase those numbers. Well, thanks in large part to uh, the leadership of uh, Anna's predecessors and her leadership. Um, I was really attracted to the work of HIP. I think it's of the many organizations that I have gotten to know and participated with. I think HIP has a a right on time mission today. And um, at this juncture in my career, you know, I am not. Uh, I'm not looking for opportunities. I'm. I'm looking for opportunities where I think I have. There's a best fit, as I said at, at the top of this this interview. I'm looking for things that are right, right for me. What was it that Sam Samaripa uniquely knows, and and what can he do with his experience? Because there's lots of things I can't do. 
And so when when I when I witnessed the the, uh, the conferences at HIP, I came away with this impression that the world had not only changed in the way that I had expected, the world had changed in a larger way than I expected. Hmm. The leaders were more vocal. They were more dynamic. They were more useful. They were more energized. They were more passionate. They were more informed. And they came from every walk of life, and they were touching every conceivable aspect of the philanthropy world with their views. And I thought to myself, wow, this is really remarkable and what's what's my role in all that? Am I just on the receiving? Am I just going to be a watcher, a cheerleader for it? Or how can I help a group that is that powerful and that inspired? And it occurred to me that the only thing that I could do is what I've always done, which is to try to uh, open doors and to try to create conversations around how important it is to have Latino voices at the table have that lens at the table, especially at the trustee level, Mm -hmm. to help navigate this future that is not only in front of us, it is right in front of us. It's at our door. And that door, that that future, while it is wonderful and promising, it's also filled up with the, the, the scourge of poverty. It's filled up with kids whose lives have been traumatized. It's filled up with people who are undereducated. It's filled up with people whose dreams have been damaged. And these people are coming, these children are coming into our schools, our elementary schools, our junior highs, our high schools, our colleges. They're coming into our workforce. They're going to be doctors. They're going to be lawyers. They're going to be truck drivers. They're going to be, they're going to represent every facet of our world. And what philanthropy does really well is philanthropy has the ability to to get involved at key moments in people's lives and to help them navigate what what's been broken in their lives but to do that effectively foundations need the experience and the eyes and the ears and the hearts of latino trustees people who can understand what they're looking at people who can articulate why something is different and what the nuance is in this population that's coming so i got involved in this process that internally we're calling the imperative campaign to to uh, selectively go out and meet with some of the leading foundations in the united states and to to talk with their leadership about the importance of this change that is that is here and the, the importance of engaging uh, Latino professionals and leaders at the trustee level to help guide these decisions and to make them relevant, not only in strategy, but to make them relevant to the people that are being helped. And that's, uh, that's what we're doing today uh, through HIP. That, that is wonderful. It, we are so honored and delighted and, and better um, because we have you and we have another Hispanic trustee, uh, Diana Bonta, on our board. And uh, it's great that we are able to benefit from your insights, but even more wonderful to see the ways that you are trying to change the field so that um, many more organizations benefit from um, your leadership and, and from the wisdom of uh of uh, Hispanic trustees. So thank you very much for doing that. And Anna Marie, thank you for your partnership uh, in uh, in this work. Um, the last question I'd like to ask both of you is what makes you hopeful? What makes you excited about um, what's possible and what's next for Latino philanthropy? I'll, I'll ask you first, Anna Marie. I'm really excited because I see so much energy and excitement. When I started listening to her a year and a half ago, I saw Latino Community 
Foundation doing extraordinary work in the Bay Area. In San Diego, you had another giving circle. You have mutual health associations in Puerto Rico. I went to Georgia when I met Sam, and I met people like Gigi Pedraza running the new uh, Georgia Community Foundation. There's one in Denver. I just had conversations last week with uh, groups of people in Michigan and Arizona that also want to start giving circles and community foundations. We're starting a power-up fund now, which will be an impact investing fund, which will leverage the uh, philanthropic resources with uh, with other kinds of investments in Latino enterprises. And so there are not just a couple of dots across the country. Um, there are many dots across the country. We're starting to connect them, and they're taking energy, as Sam said. And once this like flywheel goes into motion, it's going to just keep on going. And so that's exciting. And it's also very timely because we do we are a young community. If you look at kindergartens across the country, Latinos are a large number of the students and it's a large portion of the population and we need these kids um, powered up, ready to go, you know, educated and and, um, in a good place to carry this country into the next generation. So uh, that makes me optimistic. It's just very clear to me that there's a story to be told. It's a very rich story. It's a uniquely American story. And and there's no absence of anecdote or or uh, stories that can be embellished to 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 connect what we're talking about to everyone. Everyone understands the 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 struggle of the dreamer because it's not only a story about a kid who has who has hopes it's a story. It's uniquely American. It is about the dream that the American, um, the American experience promises. And so I, I hear everything Anna is saying, and I go, yes, 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 yes. And then I think, wow, we can tell the story in ways that people can understand it. And just like uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, you know, his admonition that we all be cheerleaders or drum majors for justice. I just think it makes the story easy. And I think it's very promising and very exciting. And I'm glad to just be watching it, you know, from my little place uh, in the southern United States. Well, I uh, appreciate all that uh, the two of you have shared with us about um, the changes that are underway in the philanthropic sector, but more importantly, the changes that um, are underway and have happened in the Latino community in the United States, the kinds of issues that they're grappling with and the new and creative ways we need to partner with those communities in order to address those issues. And I know one of the things that makes me as excited is knowing that there are leaders like the two of you on the forefront of this movement. So thank you for sharing both of your stories and your perspective and for joining us here on the Casey podcast. Thank you, Lisa. It's been so much fun. We're your biggest fan, Lisa. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us as well. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, recommend Casey Cast to a friend. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Spotify. To learn more about Casey and the work of our guests, you can find our show notes at aecf.org forward slash podcast. We also invite you to subscribe to our newsletters at aecf.org forward slash newsletters. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future. <laughs>